Hush Money is a production of iHeartRadio. This is Hush Money, a show about all the money subjects you're too uncomfortable to talk about. But we're not. I'm Nicole Lapin, money expert and author of the books Rich Bitch and Boss Bitch. And I'm Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And we believe if you don't talk about money, you're never going to make any of it. So let's start talking. Each episode, Nicole and I will debate a tricky question about money and then bring in a celebrity judge to decide who's right. So let's get uncomfortable. Okay, so this is a bonus episode that we're dropping for tax season because, you know, everybody has to deal with taxes and not everyone knows what to do. So... Death and taxes. Nicole, how do you do your taxes? Why are you looking for a good accountant? (laughs) No, I mean, like, how far do you go in taking deductions? Are are you, like, coming up with complicated ways to reduce your taxes? You know, that stuff. I mean, I wouldn't call them complicated ways of reducing my taxes, but I'm obviously following the law and looking out for number one... Why? What's a complicated way of reducing taxes? Well, that's what I wanted to know. Because, you know, we always read news stories about people that go to extreme lengths to lower their taxes or giant corporations that pay no taxes. And I I wanted to talk to someone who does this. So I put a call out on LinkedIn asking for someone who's really aggressive about their taxes. And this CPA in Florida named Noah Rosenfarb left me a comment that said, quote, I invented a strategy to own a company in Puerto Rico where I pay a 4% corporate tax rate and never pay income tax again on my earnings, end quote. What? (laughs) I have so many questions. (laughs) I know. That's what I did. So did I. So Noah came to have this philosophy about taxes, which he told me goes like this. The government influences behavior with the tax code. And the only reason that we have different tax codes at different times is because the government's looking to motivate us to do something. So I've always recognized that if we want to influence our tax facts, we have to look at what the government's asking us to do. So Noah's like, okay, government, I'll follow along. Government incentivizes business ownership with lower taxes, so Noah becomes an entrepreneur. It incentivizes home ownership, so he buys a home. And uh, then there's this. It disincentivizes marriage where two parties are working and earning approximately the same. But in my marriage to my wife who stays at home, that's an incentive. The government incentivizes me to get married to a non-income producing spouse and it reduces my tax burden. What the actual what? (laughs) What? (laughs) Did he just say that his wife stays home because it's better for his taxes? Yeah, so I asked him that point blank, and his exact words were, quote, not necessarily. But anyway, you can see where this goes as you dive deeper and deeper into the tax code. Whatever incentive the government offers to lower taxes, Noah will do it. And this is how he ends up in Puerto Rico. The island wants people to move there and start businesses. And so it offers this great tax incentive, just a 4% rate on taxes for the first 20 years of the business. So Noah thinks, okay, if you're offering, then I'm in. He opens two businesses there and Okay, I just want to play you a little bit of him explaining this, even though it gets kind of wonky. The ownership of those companies also influences the tax. So if I own that stock personally, and I had a dividend from that company to me personally, because I live in Florida, I'm a U.S. taxpayer, I'd pay the IRS my taxes, and I would pay the state of Florida taxes if they charged me any, but they don't. And also that there's no personal income tax in Florida. I am sure there is no coinkydink that Noah chose to live there because of that. Exactly. 
I would have to pay a dividend tax if I received money from that Puerto Rico company. But instead of owning that company personally, I set up a 401k plan, which is an incentive that the government's provided because they want people to save for their own retirement. And then his 401k plan bought the stock of the company. And anyway, his point is, Noah has created this complicated system of ownership so that his companies in Puerto Rico are barely taxed and they fund his retirement accounts. I mean, it's smart, but it also feels contradictory in some sense. I mean, he's going out of his way to not give the government his money, which would seem to be really anti-government. But he's doing all the things that the government is asking him to do. So what is the point that he's trying to make? Yeah, I think the answer is it's fun. I think for me it's a game and it's fun for me. But the net result of that fun is that I get to choose how to spend my money. So if a traditional taxpayer that doesn't pay much attention to this gives 40 cents of their dollar to the government, and maybe I've designed my affairs so that I only give 10 cents, I have 50% more income than them. That enables me to do a lot of things that I would could choose to do that they can't choose to do. And although Noah is unapologetic about this. He stresses that he and his wife are very philanthropic. He's not just hoarding his money. Okay, so there's a predictable response to this. Yeah. What about the argument that taxes are for the common good, like taxes to build roads and Mm -hmm. taxes to build schools? Mm -hmm. And if there aren't enough taxes, then we don't have good roads and we don't have good schools. Yeah. So I asked him that, too. And his answer amounted to don't hate the player, hate the game. Oh, my God. Our government is designing our system to give people a choice. They can do things to lower their taxation or not. So, Nicole, tax time is approaching. And today, we are here to debate just how aggressively to approach tax deductions. And I think Noah here is, is a pretty good litmus test for the question, like, You know, people could listen to him and say, that guy's got a point. Who doesn't want to lower the amount of money that they pay on taxes? Or do people listen to him and think, this guy's missing the point? Or some people might listen to him and feel exhausted. Yes, that (laughs) yours truly. Right. So here is the debate. How much should you push to get your taxes lower? And should you spend so much time and energy lowering your taxes as much as possible? Or... Do you just hire the person to just get it over with? You could hire this guy. <laughs> I think I if think there's a tax incentive, he is showing up. He is on it. Well, before we get into this stuff, I have to say, I honestly hadn't thought a lot philosophically about taxes, but then Noah's story really sat with me and I felt a little weird about it. And then I started to side more with Noah in this weird way. Not like, uh, you know, screw it all and I don't care about paying taxes for roads and schools or whatever. I don't <laughs> care like, about children. Yeah, not, which is not what he was saying. But, you know, but he's got this attitude of my money is better spent by me than by the government. And I'm looking through this stuff and I'm thinking about Noah making this point about the government incentivizing these random things and it's kind of arbitrary. There are tax breaks for boats and frankly for cars. And I'm like, why should you have a tax break for a car? Is that because there's some greater value to everyone having a car? Or is that just because the car industry was really good at moving lawmakers to give tax breaks for cars to incentivize car buying. And then I thought, you know, 
this whole thing kind of bothers me. Like, you've got these lawmakers who I don't really trust to handle complex information and to steer the country in nuanced and wise ways, and they're deciding what is and isn't valued in the tax code. And why is that something that I, I should be taking seriously and living with? Like, this is kind of nuts. You're fired up. I am fired up. I haven't seen you this fired up. I am. And about taxes. About taxes. I wouldn't expect to get fired up about taxes. But I do feel like these rules are stupid. Wow. They're stupid. I don't know if people really disagree with that. I think generally, by nature, especially tax laws, are kind of arbitrary. Yeah. And you just go with them. Yeah. All right, let's talk actual taxes here. Let me tell you what I do. I'm very curious what you do. So my wife and I, we pay quarterly taxes. So we anticipate what our income is going to be because we have a couple different sources of income, which is like salary, and then there's a bunch of freelance work. And so uh, so that we don't get slammed with the tax bill at the end, we have our accountant estimate with us what our tax bill will be for next year, and then we just divide it up into four, and then we pay. And it's actually automatic. Every couple months, I look at my bank statement, and I'm like, what what is this money that disappeared? And then I remember that it was the government yanking it out of my bank account. And and I'm trying to get better at collecting receipts throughout the year. I didn't do it at all two years ago, and then I had a bunch of friends— tell me that that was a crazy, stupid thing. And so now I'm trying to be better at it. I'm like scanning. I have this app called Tiny Scanner on my phone that I love. And so now when I go out for a work-related whatever, I scan it and I put it into Dropbox, which is where I keep everything. Smart. And then I've got all that stuff. So I'm trying to, but I, I would say I probably did it 30 to 50% of the time. Like I can't quite make a habit out of it yet, but I'm trying because then I'm going to bundle all that stuff up and I'm going to give it to the accountant and they're going to get me a deduction. I do something very similar. I anticipate taxes as well and do the quarterly thing. Mm -hmm. I have a corporation. I have an S-corp. So I pay payroll taxes. I pay corporation taxes. I pay my personal taxes. Mm -hmm. I pay all the taxes. Um, I used to do my taxes on my own. It was very stressful. I broke down a very stressful process into little baby steps, which you know I love. So instead of saying, okay, this Saturday I am going to do my taxes. I will not get up off this couch until the taxes are done and filed. And then what would happen was I would end up with like a bottle of wine and a pint of Haagen-Dazs and the taxes were undone (laughs) because it was so overwhelming. So instead, I broke it down into little steps where I was like, okay, day one, all I'm going to do is uncrinkle my receipts. That's it. Ah. Day two, I'm going to put the receipts in little piles. That's it. And then what happened was I fulfilled those goals Mm -hmm. and I stuck to them. And then ultimately, it took me a little bit longer, but I finished them because I broke down a really overwhelming process into baby steps. That's very smart. And and what about the wine and Haagen-Dazs consumption? And then I just did you break break that out into smaller amounts as well? Baby steps. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Yes. It's not the most fun situation. And for me, I get really overwhelmed thinking somehow that I'm going to get in trouble, even though I have no reason to get in trouble. But, you know, I want to do everything by the letter of the law. And so I have set up a bunch of systems now for myself to track, you know, all the expenses that my company has, so office expenses, phone, internet costs, all the stuff that's related to my business. You know, my employees have can I ask you corporate what you, cards. Ooh, can I ask you what fancy. you use to track that stuff? Because I I am in year one of having an LLC for uh, another thing that I do. And 
I just keep track of my expenses on a Google Sheet, and it felt like a good idea, but then at the end of the year, I realized that it was kind of a mess, and also it didn't take into account all these tiny little things. Like, our expenses and my spreadsheet didn't really match, and I felt like I wasted all this time on a spreadsheet. Yeah, so I have a bookkeeper who— Which is a human being. A human being who codes all of my expenses. So she looks at mine, my employees' expenses, codes them by, like, travel or Hmm. gifts or hosting stuff, internet stuff. So all of those different expenses are categorized and logged. And if you're on QuickBooks and if you have a small business, there are a lot of these traditional expenses— licenses that you might have to pay related to your business, subscriptions, you know, um, office rent, stuff like that, that the system already knows to almost tag automatically. And then once you do it one time, the system recognizes charges like that. Uh, So it's easier to code. And then when you give your taxes off to your accountant or if you are doing them yourself, it's much easier come tax time to have everything like Right. Coded, color-coded. Subscriptions I've totally forgotten about. I subscribe to all sorts of stuff. Like That's the where New York a Times. lot of people forget. Yeah. You have, like, your own personal budget deficit. So the right. country has a budget deficit. People have budget deficits when the stuff that they pay for and the amount of money they bring in does not match, which it sounds like was one of your issues. Like, yes. you forgot about the it, Netflix subscription yes. or the whatever else that might be related to your business or even the stuff that's paid for in cash, which not a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. But those types of things like have to be accounted for, those numbers have to match. Yeah. And so you're you know, forgetting something if they are. No, totally. And also, now that I think about it, there are things that I subscribe to that I subscribed to them originally for a personal purpose, like the New York Times, because I want to be an informed person of the world. But reading the New York Times also helps me in this business. So is it a business expense? Can I call it a business expense? That's a professional expense if you ask me because you're looking also potentially at a competitor. You're getting more insight into the industry, to trends. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of trade magazines are often deductible. Mm. If you have a car and you're driving, you have to also remember not only like the car itself, insurance, gas, maintenance, tolls, parking, all that stuff. But all of that is potentially a business expense. And, you know, if you keep track of it, you could be making a lot of money. Like, you could be claiming a standard mileage rate of 58 cents a mile. Um, You still have to keep track of, like, how far it was for business. You know, I have a Delta card for personal travel and then for business travel. You know, a lot of gifts that I do, they can be marketing expenses. I give a lot of flowers and hmm. lots of those plaques. Yeah. Like you get the boss bitch plaques. Yeah, you gave me the boss bitch plaque. Just for, in case people don't know what the hell that means. Like, uh, you know, the little plaque that was, so it would be on a desk that would say somebody's name and their title. You, yeah, like the you, principal plaque. Yeah, you sent me one that says Jason Pfeiffer, boss bitch. Yep. And I love it. It's sitting on my desk. I'm glad. And it didn't occur to me, but you totally expensed that. I totally expensed yeah. That. And now what about— Does that bother you? No, I, I love it. Good for you. Yeah, cool. Um, so we expense, uh, deduct a part of our apartment, we being my wife and I, because she works from home. And so we've calculated some portion of the apartment that goes to work. And we also take a slice of internet and a slice of utilities, I think. Good. If you think about these deductions, so even when your business doesn't generate profit, 
you can actually deduct a lot of those expenses on your income as a net operating loss that can be carried forward to later years. I've taken operating losses a few years um, Mm -hmm. and have carried them forward uh, to reduce tax bills in later years. So if you keep track of them properly, like there's no shame in taking a loss and there's no shame in that deduction game. Yeah. You know what? That is actually one that I think is wonderful because that is incentivizing risk-taking. Go out, start the business. If you lose money on it, you can use that loss. It's kind of a weird thing to use a loss, but that's what you're doing. Well, because you're investing in a business, and and a lot of times you're searching for growth and not profitability Mm -hmm. in a business. But you can also, by the way, claim a deduction if you do earn income on a self-employed small business or like a side hustle. Um, I feel like you have so many side hustles. I do. But you can have a qualified business income deduction, which equals 20% of your net earnings. Mm. Um, That's actually fairly new. So that started a couple of years ago. Um, If you didn't get it in the past, just check to see if you're eligible for that this year. So whether you didn't make money or you did make money, you could get hooked up on your taxes. Yeah. Jason, now that you have kids, has your tax strategy changed? Can I get a form from my child every year about what I spent on them? I feel like you should. I feel like I should be able to do that. I dare you. That would go viral, (laughs) by the way. So, yeah. So, you know, if you're trying to save for someone's education, like a kid or a grandkid, there are these things called 529 plans and or QTPs, apparently, qualified tuition plans. Though I've just always known them as 529 plans. And uh, the contributions that you make there are deductible in your state return. And I have ones for both of my kids. We created them within weeks of our kids being born, and then just threw in some seed money, it was like a few grand, and set up a thing where I think it's $50 a month that gets pulled out of our accounts and goes into their 529. And then when we see a surplus in our checking accounts, you know, when we were just like, oh, we've got a little money that we can move into something else— then we go and distribute it into the 529s. And there's there's money in there now. I mean, it's like, it's only been a few years. My older son, Fen, is four and a half now, and there's thousands of dollars in there. It's good. It's a good start. What if he doesn't go to college? I mean, I suppose that if you never use it for education, then you pull it out and you get taxed on it. I mean, you're, there's no downside to putting something away tax-free now because you'll probably use it later. And if you don't, then it just becomes regular income and you lose some taxes on it, right? Right. Okay, let's talk about FSAs and HSAs. Sounds like an STD, but they're not. But they're not. They save you money. For health, specifically. There is a transit one as well. I I have an entrepreneur. I put money away for three savings accounts that I have that are tax-free. Tax advantage. Tax Tax advantage, right. Not tax-free. Good point. Uh, There's one uh, is the health one. Then there's an HSA. Another one is uh, for transit that I use for buying my subway cards. And then for dependent care because I use it for paying for childcare. So, by the way, like, you can also make those contributions pretty late in the game. Oh, yeah, you can do it as late as April. Okay. I know you're never going to retire. What? Are you? Am I going to retire? Oh, maybe I've never asked you this. No. I mean, I will retire from... No. Right. I don't no, think I, I will want not. to retire, no. ever. I mean, I don't know what it even means. Right. I like making stuff. I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, same, same. We're going to make this show yeah. until we get to the grave. Buckle up, everyone. We're, yeah. we're in for the next 80 years. Geriatric uh-huh. hush money. 
old bitch coming out, <laughs> my <laughs> next book. Um, but yeah, you obviously have a lot of tax advantages with retirement plans. So, you know, with an IRA, do you have an IRA? Yeah. An individual retirement account? So, I do. I have know, a Roth IRA. Is that a different good. thing than an IRA? They are. Oh. So traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs. And the difference is actually in the taxes. Mm. So Roth IRAs, you actually pay taxes now. Yeah. Did you know that? No. Which is actually pretty dope. Huh. Versus paying taxes on traditional IRAs later. Oh. And why do I say it's pretty dope? Because you don't want to pay more taxes. Right. But here's the thing. Mm. People don't realize when they take their money out from their retirement accounts, like their 401ks or their traditional IRAs, that they're going to have to pay taxes. Like, the money in there is not the amount that they're going to have when they're Betty White Yeah, I did not age. know that. Right. So the reason that it's good to pay taxes now, or at least to have diversified tax exposure in your retirement accounts, is that your tax bracket— because I'm betting on you, Jason Pfeiffer, um, mm-hmm. that your income is going to be higher when you're an old man. Fingers crossed. Right? And so you're going to be in higher tax brackets. Mm-hmm. So you'll be paying higher taxes at that point when you're taking the money out. And I'm not a betting woman, but I would say the taxes come time when you are 65 years old are going to be higher as well. So I would say get the tax bill out of the way now, which is what you're doing with your Roth IRA. Nicole Lavin, that was like some hot tax tip dropping that you just did there. Really? I, was, I thought it was pretty, I was like kind of was, basic bitch in it. Yeah, that was great. Well, by the way, you can have both. You can have a traditional IRA. You can have a Roth IRA. Mm-hmm. The more the merrier when it comes to retirement vehicles. Mm. Like if you just have one, you'll probably be eating cat food when you're an old man. I don't want that. Yeah, you don't want cat food. No. You want to live large. I know. I want the— The male version of Betty White. I want the wine and the Haagen-Dazs. You totally do. Uh, Let's bring in somebody else who has paid probably far more in taxes— Than both of us combined. Than both of us combined. It is James Altucher. He's made money. He's lost money. He's paid taxes. James Altucher is a hard man to summarize, so I'm just going to quote his own summary of himself. He once wrote, quote, I made tens of millions of dollars, cash, lost it, made it again, lost it, made it again, got divorced, lost my home, lost my money, made it again, lost it, end quote. Oh, now I'm depressed. I have to go. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm then, really depressed now. I will add some more to that story. Made it again, founded 20 or so companies, ran hedge funds, investment funds, wrote a ton of great books, launched a popular podcast, The James Altucher Show, became a stand-up comic, got married, and for our purposes today, I'm going to guess also paid a lot of taxes in a lot of different tax brackets, which makes you a perfect guest to have on the show today. So James, thanks for being on Hush Money. You guys, thanks for having me on the podcast. I've been so excited about this. Well, James, we want to know what you do with your taxes, what tricks you might have to get the most out of your deductions. But let's start personal, because sure, taxes are tactical, but they're also a big old swirling mess of law and philosophy and politics. And that's why Nicole and I feel differently about how much someone can and should save on their taxes. I see people taking advantage of the tax laws, and at first I think, That's not fair. And then I think, well, wait a second. If they're following the law, then the law is the real problem. Nicole, on the other hand, feels like people just need to keep the greater good in mind more. You know, we can't take advantage of things just because they're open to being taken advantage of. So sure, get your reasonable deductions, but then fund those schools and roads. And now, James, it is time for you to issue something that's almost as good as a giant tax refund, and that is your stamp of approval. So whose side are you on? I think there's a middle road where whether or not you should pay, because that goes into the question of is the government the correct allocator of money? Clearly, the government needs some money to help people who can't help themselves. So social welfare programs. So those ethics aside, you should pay. You shouldn't avoid. But you should consider the legal 
gray areas because the government is incentivizing you to not pay taxes if you do these other things like yeah. like fund infrastructure projects, give to charity, save for future health needs, save for your kids' education, buying a house in some cases. The government incentivizes you to not pay taxes. Pay attention when they do that because it's usually a pretty good idea. And so I think that's the gray area where you're both saying the same thing. By the way, I just want to mention I'm not an accountant. So what I suggest might be bad advice. It's just what I do. Yeah. And it's kind of important to know that because an accountant's going to give maybe the opposite advice. But I'll tell you I'll tell you what I've done specifically. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to ask. Typically, I'll file, but then extend till October. You can always extend six months later. And during the summer, what happens is the IRS by that time knows what you've made the prior year. It's all in their big database. They roughly know. They they don't know your losses, but they know all your gains. You get that number, and then from there, you can figure out your real taxes. So I'll usually file, put some money in, but then I really find out all the different sources and what I made around July or August, and then pay the full amount in October or file again and be willing to pay a penalty. As long as you're proactive, they'll work with you. So sometimes I might feel I have a better use for the money than if I pay penalties later. So I take that Mm. into account, although Hmm. usually just be straight up and pay at the extended point. How much are you thinking about taxes throughout your year? Like, are you are you making decisions based on taxes, decisions on what to buy or what to invest in? Or, you know, I, I do this thing instead of that thing because the taxes will be lower. Does it? No. And no. I think that's very critical, actually. Do not strategize your business life, your investing life, your entrepreneurial life around tax strategies. You know, I don't like to, I don't like to game it. I don't like to think about it. I will think, uh, you know, what can I write off down to zero? I will think, what can I, you know, write off in business expenses? So stuff like that. And I'll, I do like municipal bond investments, and there's ways to invest in municipal bonds that are a little bit more clever. I'll just throw it out there if people could look it up. But closed-end funds is a great way to invest in municipal bonds. And I've told very sophisticated hedge fund managers who manage billions, they, don't, they didn't even know about closed-end funds. I was like, oh, like one time I got an email that was accidentally intended for, it's weird that I got this, but it was accidentally intended for a very famous financial hedge fund manager and commentator on the news and so on, like very well known. And <laughs> it was just it was just like a, they they auto-filled to your name instead of... Yeah, they auto-filled. Right, we had, so we somebody using, whose name starts with J. We had like the same bank or something. I don't yeah. know. It was, it was very inappropriate that I got this email. And it turned out I got this guy's entire portfolio. And it was all municipal bonds. So I called him. I said, sorry, I got this. This was intended for you. But why are you doing straight municipal bonds when you can do these things called closed-in funds where you can get the municipal (laughs) bonds at a a discount? That's And this is a guy who's on TV all the time giving financial advice. He's like, whoa, I've never heard about that. And I'm going to tell my guy to look into it. And I'm like, yeah, here's an example, example, example. And you get all the tax benefits and some other benefits as well. And it's a little safer investment than the average stock in terms of volatility. Huh, that's a great tip. So take all your sensitive financial information, just send it to <laughs> random it, people, and hopefully they'll get back to you. Yeah, just send it to James. Yeah, just, just right, send, send it, it to me, all to James. <laughs> and uh, I'll take a look at it and tell you where you're going wrong. But I just am curious, what's the intersection between loopholes on your side and greater good on your side. What do you think is the intersection? Because I see very valuable intersection. Oh, well, I, I mean, I want to know what you... Yeah, what do you think, think is the intersection Well, because is? 
let's just say there's three levels of ethics with taxes. There's, you kind of have this philosophical stance on taxes in general, which is that, you know, this kind of extreme view, the government is stealing your money and they don't know how to allocate your money better than you and blah, blah, blah. Then there's just the real world where it's not philosophical, where you have to decide, okay, it's ethical and mandatory. Just pay everything I owe, not question it, not try to find loopholes or whatever. But then there's two kinds of Loopholes. There's ones that the government wants you to do, which I think are totally ethical because there's reasons why they want you to do these loopholes. And then there's ones where you're kind of screwing the system and that's both unethical and illegal and you kind of have to decide what's the right risk you're willing to take. And and the middle one is like the intersection. So, for instance, owning a municipal bond, which pays tax-free interest as dividends, that's both ethical and there's a reason why that's the law, why they're tax-free, is because the government wants you to invest in municipal bonds rather than corporate bonds, which aren't tax-free, because they want you to fund, you know, municipal infrastructure projects. So, like, if a city is building a bridge, they'll issue municipal bonds to fund building the bridge, so the government incentivizes you, hey, if you invest in these, the dividends aren't taxed. Or if you... um buy a house and move to Puerto Rico, you get no federal taxes because people, what they want you to move and make, you know, capitalists and innovate in Puerto Rico. Yeah. You know, whereas unethical might be, oh, I'm going to set up six separate shell companies in the Cayman Islands and (laughs) trade back and forth between them. That's unethical and and most likely illegal. Even if there's loopholes, if you go over the gray, people know when they're going over the gray area and very famous people have gone over the gray area. My view is if it smells like you're doing something bad, you're doing something that's illegal, and I would rather not risk any trouble. I'd rather pay a penalty than risk trouble. Totally. And it's interesting that you say you don't know, and I think there's a really good reason why you don't know, because you famously and notoriously, whatever you want to say, like, do not believe in buying housing. And a yeah. lot of people will justify to themselves a mortgage because of the tax benefit, which, which is, is— Which is idiotic. Because it's like the tax— tail wagging the housing dog or whatever the well lay, lay this anal- lay this argument out lay, uh, analogy is. convince me why i should not have bought this brownstone let's just say for any investment at all imagine someone comes up to you and says jason i want you to do this i want you to put all of your money into one single tiny investment and by the way also i want you i think it's best for you if you borrow also as much possible money as you can <laughs> And also put it into that one single investment. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. And then, by the way, you're going to also have to pay interest. You know, when you borrow money, you're going to have to pay something called maintenance and and something called property taxes. And then there's going to be a tiny piece of those interest payments that you're going to be able to write off on your taxes, by the way. Isn't that great? You would never, (laughs) like, if if what he was telling you was do that with this weird microcap stock, you would say, no way, I'm never going to do that. But, oh, people say, a house is like just a small microcap stock. And that's exactly what what you're doing with a house. So in any other context, you would just common sense. You would say, that's the worst investment strategy ever. There's no way that could possibly be smart as an investment. That's like going to a casino. And housing doesn't go up historically better than other than, you know, investment classes. It's like a 2% a year after inflation strategy. And it goes up and down as we've seen in 2008, 2009. And and then you're paying interest, you're paying uh, uh, property taxes, you're paying, which is unclear each year. Mm-hmm. Maintenance is unclear each year. So they termites always, and. Wait, yeah, but the, yeah, but they, the obvious the obvious counter to this, just because I I don't know what you're going to say to it, is before 
my wife and I bought our place, we were paying some absurd, I think it was like $3,500 a month in rent. And that's money that we will never see back, right? Whereas at least if I'm paying my mortgage, it's money that I can see back in some form or another. Well, you can predict your maintenance. So some years your maintenance you won't see back. You can't predict the rise in property taxes, so you don't know. Like some some of that you might not be able to see back. Uh, there's assumption that you can pass on the mortgage to potentially renters or, or other opportunities, but that's unclear because particularly if you're living in, in the house, you don't really see it. They tell you you see it back, but I bet you if you add up all those numbers, you're not really seeing that money back. Also, let's say, let's just hypothetically say for somebody out there, they're, they're buying a $300,000 house, they're putting $100,000 down, as opposed to paying $1,000 a month in rent. I'm just making up all these numbers. Sure. So that would be the rough. So I'd rather spend $1,000 today to live in the place than $100,000 plus maintenance, property tax, and so on to live in that house. So you, and you, use the opportunity cost of that $100,000 to invest in other stuff. Invest in other stuff or invest in yourself. Or you know what? It's really nice to have cash in the bank so you can sleep. Like imagine when the stock market goes 20%, which it does every couple of years. Oh, don't no worries. I have cash in my checking account. I can sleep at night and 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 I'm not worried. And then you could also move when you want. You know, every now and then you can't move. Like when you let's say you lose a job and then you're like, you know what? I need to move and sell my house. Well, when you lose your job, there might be a recession happening. Now you can't sell your house and and move. Whereas if you're renting, it's very easy for you to move and take better income opportunities. I kind of think a lot of the beliefs about housing um, are created by companies to sort of keep you locked in so you can't quit your job or you can't move far away too easily. Now, by the way, if you have a home and this is where you want to raise your kids for the next 30 years, you could do whatever you want. You, you, you know, nobody, I would never criticize if this is like a life decision and it's important to you and it makes your family feel secure and comfortable. But I think as an investment decision, there's no way to justify it. And taxes is the worst way to justify it because it's a tiny percentage of a percentage of a percentage that you save every year that you'd rather not save at all. Well, I totally agree. And I think it's selling interesting. Selling the house. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jason, keep the house and the brownstone love. It's true. Don't the taxes are about low. That. That's like totally on the up and up. Your yeah, brownstone yeah. in Brooklyn. Oh, like, yeah. oh my God. And yeah, you're if you not love doing your home, all this. Keep it. Like, uh, but it's interesting. By, by the way, like, when do you ever see that money back? Because if you live there for 30 years, okay, maybe you sell it for a, a profit that included everything in, but then you just pour it right back into buying another house. Yeah. You know, to get the tax benefits from immediately buying another house. So you never really see that money again. It's kind of in the housing sphere forever for you as yeah. opposed to just sitting in your checking account. And you also, a lot of people don't account account for inflation. Like they think that they're making this huge gain. Like grandma bought a house for $50,000 and then she sold it for $200,000. Like grandma bought that house when movie tickets were 25 cents also. <laughs> like we're not comparing apples to apples yeah. either. Uh, and if you want to flip houses, like go on HGTV. It's not a thing that people should do. House, a house is a house. I don't think it's a good investment, but the opportunity opportunity cost aspect of it is really interesting, and I think people get caught up with the tax justification yes. of it ridiculously. The opportunity cost that you brought up for using your tax money potentially for other things and delaying paying taxes for it is really interesting. As I long never as you thought want to of the penalty, like yeah, being upfront and I paying the, the penalty, or it could just be I'm broke and I can't afford it, so then I got to like pay the penalty. It's not so bad either. Again, if you're proactive, to work out a plan with the IRS occasionally and and see what happens. They're willing to work with you if you if you'll give them money because a lot of people they don't see any money from. So if you call them up and say, hey, can I come in and work this out? 
I've visited the IRS offices a few times in my career, so... Just don't be sketchy about it. Yeah, yeah, just don't be like, oh, oh I'm going to weird. the Cayman Islands yeah. and I'm trading back and forth. You know, there, there's all sorts of like little strategies, but ultimately, you got to you gotta pay. Well, James, I don't feel like all. that last answer kind of gave us a good split decision here. James Elcher, thank you so much for being on Hush Money. Thank you, guys. I'm so glad to, to finally be here. Okay, so here's what I love about listening to James. James has rolled big. He knows what all the super wealthy peeps are doing. And he's seeing it and he's saying, you know, some good, some bad, but I think that you all should understand what's going on out there. Like, there's stuff that's hidden from you. And if we're going to talk about taxes, then like understand exactly what's available and what's not available and what's cool and what's not cool. And it gives you an extreme look at what some of these examples are. You know, if it hurts my head and your head, it's probably not something you want to do. Yeah. So you and I are both totally going to email our finances to James right now, right? 100%. Yeah. And that is Hush Money. Hey, are you subscribed to Hush Money wherever you get your podcasts? You should be. And please give us a rating, which helps others find the show. It sure does. And if you want to keep up with us on social, I'm at Nicole Lappin. Jason is at Hey Pfeiffer. And for the podcast specifically, it's at Hush Money Podcast on Instagram. We've got great people to thank. Our amazing producer is Christina Everett. Thanks also to Mangesh, Hatikador, Will Pearson, Beth Ann Macaluso, and Nikki Etor, and the rest of the great iHeart team. Our sound editing is by Mary Duke. And a special thanks to my badass NBG team, Sabrina Anderson, Megan Nelson, and Kate Garrison. Hush Money is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 